Hey, it's Courtney. Just wanted to let you know that you might want to put in some headphones for this one as there's some strong language. In the week leading up to this interview and the week since this interview, I have just been obsessively listening to and watching everything Tanya's done that is available to me. And I hope you get the urge to do so. Make sure you subscribe to her podcast, like her pages, and listen and learn from her. She's a great teacher. Part of being a whole artist is taking care of yourself emotionally and mentally. And racism doesn't just affect black people. It affects everyone. Tanya talks about that. She talks about the healing of racism. And what I think we have to understand is it's not just for the black individual either. It is for the collective to do. It is our responsibility as a whole to heal racism, whether we are black or white or any other color. We must do the work individually and collectively to heal. Thanks for listening. Part inspiration, part education, the whole artist with Courtney Rue. Be your best you. Hey, thanks for listening to The Whole Artist with Courtney Rue. I'm Courtney Rue. Today we have Tanya Richard as our guest. Tanya recently appeared in School Girls or the African Mean Girls play at the Goodman Theater. She has performed on Broadway with Steppenwolf Theater Company, the Court Theater, the Second City, among others. She is currently the producer and host of Tanya's Take, Race, Culture, and the Culture of Race. She was previously the host of the podcast Race Bait. Her video series, A Minute on Racism, is on Facebook. Her books are My So-Called Unexpected Life, The Ten Things I Did to Meet and Marry My Man, Be a Stepmom, Have Babies, and Embrace the Life I Never Knew I Wanted, and Unexpected Life, Interviews About Embracing the Unexpected. She's also an award-winning playwright. She has appeared on Chicago Fire, Chicago Justice, Chicago PD, Empire, Proven Innocent, The Shy, Work in Progress, as well as multiple commercials. Tanya has been featured on NPR's All Things Considered, The Story, The John Howell Show on WLS, The Chicago Tribune, and on WTTW's Chicago Tonight, speaking on the issues of culture, race, equity, and inclusion. You can find her at tanyarichard.com. That's T-A-N-I-A-R-I-C-H-A-R-D.com. I discovered Tanya this week when a minute on racism appeared in my Facebook feed and I watched it. And then I saw something on Instagram and just went down the um, rabbit hole, down the Tanya Richard rabbit hole of just watching and consuming and listening to um, her podcast and her videos. I just really loved what she had to say. It was really eye-opening and helpful. We talk about it on this podcast of uh, her work as a storyteller and how effective that is rather than spouting facts to actually tell stories and have listeners empathize, not sympathize with being a black person in America. Tanya so graciously agreed to be on the podcast and speak about this in a time that has been really difficult for black people. And so I appreciate her taking time to come out and talk about it. We're going to have to have a whole nother episode with her where she talks about her career as an actor in Chicago because the whole conversation revolved around equity and inclusion and diversity and trauma and joy uh, about being a black person in America and in this industry. You know, she doesn't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers, but at least we are talking about it. I think in America, it has been so frowned upon to talk about race. Something that Trevor Noah talks about is in South Africa, people actually talk about race. 
and here it's a four-letter word that we're not supposed to talk about and we're not supposed to see color and but it's important to have these conversations and I think that we as white people are waking up to the fact that we need to have these conversations and we need to destigmatize the word racism so that we can actually admit we have a problem in this country and that we all are racist and not to defend ourselves and to listen to um, black stories and to empathize and to understand and to make change. So I'm really grateful that Tanya was able to come on today and, and talk about that. And now here is my interview with Tanya Richard. Hey, Tanya, thank you so much for being here today, especially after what is, I'm sure, a really traumatic week. And I appreciated when you reached out that sort of question of like, do you want to talk now? Are you, I would imagine you're wiped out and, yeah, you know, that sensitivity is appreciated because, and I had to check in with myself. I'm like, can I talk right now? Right. <laughs> but I, I also know we are in a moment. So I really want to take advantage of that, you know? Yeah, definitely. I know I've asked a, a couple of friends and they said they didn't have the space for it. The, yeah. the bandwidth for it. Yeah. I totally get that. And I appreciate you. I'm sure you're used to because you do teach about equity and inclusion and diversity. I'm sure you get wiped out a lot. Yeah. But you still push through. And I appreciate that because it, obviously we need it. Mm -hmm. And just like it's a sacrifice for you. And and I really appreciate that. Thanks. Yeah. It's interesting to sort of hear it reflected back that way because there is an element of having to push through it and making sure that I take the pauses when I do. So that's actually a lot of what I did with my podcast, where when I started Tanya's Take, I very much was taking one step at a time and really listening to my spirit and my heart. And like, I'd be whatever number of episodes into a season. And if I started to feel tired or overwhelmed, I was like, season's over, going on hiatus, bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> and then I would just, no guarantees of when it was coming back. And, you know, I just had to really follow my heart on that. It's important to listen to that because you can get burnout from activism and then you're no good to yourself, to anybody, if right. you are burnt out. And there is that thought of like, you, you don't want to have that spiritual bypass of, oh, everything's fine. I'm okay. Let me just push through this. You have to go through things and feel it and then get through to the other side. It's coinciding with trauma. So it's mm -hmm. different like with another discipline, like maybe working out and like, yes, we listen to our bodies, but sometimes there are those times where you have to push through. But because this is associated with trauma and it's working within trauma, that says sensitivity is essential. Otherwise you are actually doing more harm to yourself. Yeah. How difficult is it to do the work and find the joy and get through to the other side when you keep experiencing this trauma over and over again? Well, I would say that's sort of the difference between my first and second seasons of Tanya's Take, because once I decided I was going to do a second season, I decided I was going to concentrate on joy and the sisterhood mm -hmm. of Black women, I leaned much more into that. And I realized and 
decided that that was my own revolutionary act that, you know, despite being re-injured over and over again, I was sort of defiantly going to continue to focus on our joy. Mm -hmm. And that was in itself my own sort of personal protest. Like, we will not be shut down in our joy. Mm -hmm. Now, this round of events, I have been having a harder time connecting to my joy. And it's something that I'm very aware of lately. I'm like, when is the last time I belly laughed? When is the last time I just felt joy that wasn't quickly taken away or sort of turned into anxiety because the joy felt fleeting? So I'm sort of on a personal quest of that right now. Part of that is remembering to talk to my friends. Yeah. And quite honestly, in particular, my black friends. Even if we're talking about this tough stuff, it is very uh, cathartic. And it's inevitable when you are in proximity to other Black people that we find joy. So in the conversations I had last week with my girlfriends, little moments and pockets of those joys came out, even though we were talking about some really intense things. You have to, right? Yeah. I've just really been enjoying listening to your podcast, both the episodes um, that are teaching me about racism and white supremacy and the ones where you're talking to your friends about their experience and their joy and their experiences with racism. I mean, the, the reason I found you was the one minute on racism yeah. series that you're doing. Can you talk a little bit about that series and sure. why you started that? So I actually started that in 2016, and it's funny now that I think about that. Maybe it actually started right before the election, and then, mm. um, but anyways, 2016 is when I actually submitted it for this blog her event that was bringing together all these bloggers, and it actually won Voices of the Year for 2016. So I know that's why you know 2016 is a sort of bookmark of um, right. when it was created, but. I, as a writer and an actor and a teacher and a DNI facilitator, I'm always looking for the creative ways to get people to think about racism on a personal level, because I think that's where action is inspired and activated, is when somebody has that moment of seeing the other person as a human. Mm. And I was just thinking a lot about the racism that I've experienced in my life. And another part of that is that when I say racism, some of the things in the videos are very explicit and mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, obvious in the sense of like, we're talking about police brutality. We're talking about harassment. We're talking about the N word, things like that. Like but conscious hate against black people. Exactly. And then there's a whole other aspect of what gets revealed in the videos, which is really about microaggressions. Mm -hmm. It's death by a thousand cuts, right? right? And it's that notion of the small ways in which racism can chip away at a person's humanity in terms of how people treat Black people, the things they say, the dismissals, what might seem like a casual remark that really is embedded racism in this country. And so a lot of that gets revealed within the series as well. And so, again, I was kind of looking for a way to share some of my experiences, but I didn't want it to 
be in a way that was like, poor me, feel sorry for me. Cause I wasn't looking for sympathy. I was looking for understanding for right. people to understand what it is, what it looks like, be able to examine whether they have ever engaged in behaviors that would make a person feel the way I had felt. And Absolutely. so I was thinking about those things and I'm like, how do I present this? How do I do it in a digestible way with impact? And so I just started, what if it was more of a laundry list rather than a detailed longer stories. And so that's where it began. I'm like, what if I tried within a minute to tell as many stories with the clear indication that as soon as the timer goes off, I have to stop, whether I'm mid-sentence, mid-word, mid-thought. That was really powerful when I was yeah. watching it because then you just realize, oh my God, the list goes on and on and on for this person and for exactly. every person that you interview. Yes, and, and it's one minute. And one within minute. that minute, it's six or eight stories, many of which just leave your jaw dropped and you realize that was a freaking minute. And so the right. sort of tagline is how many stories fill a minute, how many stories fill a life. And what you're left with inevitably when you watch them is that there's just so many stories coming from one person in terms of the injury they have endured in this country simply because they are black. And I think it was also very powerful, like you said, that you show both the conscious hate and also this unconscious hate because you talk about in your episode the racism and white supremacy and you talk about it on when you're on Allie Goodman's podcast yes, yes. podcast as well of like we are all white people I mean we are all racist because we grew up in America and we were taught this and if we mm -hmm. think about racism as this conscious hate against black people, of course, like I would never want to be a racist. But if right. I think about all the things I've said and done or didn't say and didn't do over my lifetime, I am. I am racist. And right. I need to check that. Right. And a, the, there's a couple of pieces there. So one of the pieces is you cannot be a white person in this country who has benefited from systemic racism and not be a part of that racism. Because it means, whether it's conscious or not, that you've kind of been okay with it, right? Right. right. That you're comfortable. And really the only way other than being anti-racist and constantly being present and available to dismantle systemic racism, that's the work of anti-racism, the really the only other way would, to do that would be as a white person to completely reject all of the advantages that you receive because you're white. You'd have to do your own inventory and say to yourself, am I willing to give all of this up? Yeah. And then you might be able to say, I'm not racist. I get so frustrated in the media and in the culture when somebody has done something racist and then people want to say, but I mean, they're not racist. I mean, um, it just, just happened with CrossFit, right? Uh, oh, I don't know about I'm, it certainly just happened with Drew Brees. But oh, yes. Chicago, what happened with CrossFit? So the CrossFit guy, the CEO came out. Um, someone said that racism is a pandemic is it mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. and he replied something about like hashtag floyd 19 oh, okay yeah yeah and then he said something else i just read this last night before i went to bed and it, it was of course a racist comment and then the next day he um, maybe half-ass apologized, probably yeah. didn't apologize, and then said it was a racist thing but i am not a racist or something like or yeah. like it wasn't it 
something about how it wasn't racist. And it's like, if you have to say, but it wasn't racist, Mm -hmm. it was racist. If it looks like a duck and if it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. And the fact of the matter is, it's like one of the things I wish I could get people to see and what so much of my work about is like, we need to, in a way, diffuse the power of the word racist because racist is the start. My whole theory is, Everyone is either racist or prejudiced, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I have prejudice. I have bias. I contribute and uphold white supremacy as a light-skinned Black woman in a myriad of ways, right? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of where I fall. If you are a white person, if you are willing to really own that if you exist in a system where you gain advantage because of the color of your skin, and if you are active within that system you are racist that's just the start and then it doesn't become the four-letter word you're being called if you do something that just reflects the situation you find yourself in so it's like it's not the worst thing in the world to be called a racist it just isn't it almost doesn't mean anything it's a simple description of sort of where you find yourself in the world And then it's about being anti-racist. And then it's about being rigorous with your intentions and taking Mm -hmm. inventory, rejecting things that you recognize you could let go of. So earlier when I said, look, it's about what privileges or advantages you might be willing to give up. And if you were willing to give up all of Mm -hmm. them, maybe you could say you aren't racist. But if you are willing to examine areas that you can step back and go, I am not entitled to this. I can make space for other people. Let me step aside Mm -hmm. in this case. We're not talking about necessarily, you know, the basics, you know, food, shelter. We're talking about, you know, a lot of it is um, something called opportunity hoarding. And it happens a lot in communities where white people sort of crowd the front of the line, whether it's in school Mm -hmm. districts or education. And they're taking advantage of programs and stuff that weren't really even originally set up for them. And then it's not giving enough space for the people who either need it more or who it was originally set up for. So that's what I mean when I say inventory and like it's your own personal inventory, being rigorous with your word, understanding where you can step aside and make space for others, which doesn't mean you're losing anything. I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work, but that is the work. It is. Yeah. I'm glad that we are waking up to that right now. Does it feel different right now at all? It feels different. I don't trust it yeah. because I'm not a fool. <laughs> <laughs> and, Happened before. Uh, I'm, I'm weary of it. But I think this perfect storm of this pandemic where we are, have all been shut yeah. inside and Amy Cooper in Central Park, who it is a case study of activating white privilege where she Mm -hmm. weaponizes her ability to call the police on this black man and knows that it is a threat for his life. Everybody being able to see that, and then right after that, and and let's not forget that it sort of started having to view or witness Ahmaud Arbery, the jogger, being killed, and we're in the midst of the pandemic. And then Amy Cooper emerges, which ultimately, in the scheme of things, was a gift because people could see it. And then... This tragedy of George Floyd, this perfect storm, which has the world out on the streets demanding justice. 
That's where it's different. But now we have to see how long it lasts. And the more the world opens back up, if people will get distracted again. That's the thought that I had today is like, are we opening up early because cities want people to get back to the norm and stop having time? Well, that's so funny. I love how you're thinking. I think that you know what I'm finding, actually? I'm such <laughs> I know, a conspiracy like, theorist. I feel like a, a soul connection here because I love all that stuff, too. But um, no, I think that uh, I think we were already opening up what I'm finding interesting. Right. So I don't think there's a direct correlation. But yeah. what I'm noticing is on a sort of 360 view, if you think about it, just as we are about to open up, This stuff happens and people are back out on the streets, which, hate to say it, will very likely cause another peak, which very likely might bring us all back inside. And when when you think of it in that way, it's like the universe is saying you haven't really figured it out yet, you know? And so that's where I'm Mm -hmm. interested in, like, what's going to happen that, you know, yes, I have been a part of a number of social distancing protests or rallies, and people are being very conscious of that. But we can't deny that we're gathering. We also have to accept that we have to. And how that's going to translate, we don't know. Again, will that bring us all back inside to, you know, it's almost like, well, you almost got ungrounded, but go back to your room because I just think it just will hopefully, um, I'm not saying I want a peak to happen again, but no. it'd be great if we didn't have to peak again, but that this surge continues, you know, and that restlessness yeah. that people are feeling coupled with what now they have witnessed continues to have meaning and doesn't fade away. Yeah. I want to go back to what we were talking about before we got into one minute of racism is like, how are you taking care of yourself? And when you do stop and think about joy or experience joy, besides talking with your other Black friends, what are some things that you're doing to take care of yourself and focus on joy in this time? Well, you know, it's so funny because we had checked in a little bit and you were just checking in with me, like, what are some of the things you might want to talk about? And I, I, I shared with you, like, I would love to talk about healing and finding joy. And, um, Mm -hmm. but I realized I'm like, oh, I hope she doesn't think I have any solution. (laughs) 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 But the reason I wanted to bring that up is because I am struggling. Yeah. I'm like, I have clean forgotten how to do self-care. I'm like, what do I do to make myself feel better? And unfortunately, because there's been a degree of detachment, a degree of numbness in order to just get through a day with all of these events, Mm. I've been doing Mm -hmm. a lot of scrolling and a lot of screen time. And uh, one thing I guess I've started is putting my phone down for hours at a time. And I can feel that shift of like, oh, this is maybe just something I can do at the end of the day as opposed to all day. (laughs) Right. Um, (laughs) And I have an amazing family. And when I really let myself connect to my girls, whether it's doing a puzzle or just hanging out with them, 
laying on my back and just breathing. Mm-hmm. But like, honestly, like, I mean, I think everybody struggles with this sort of like magazine version of self-care, like bubble baths and which I've never right. really leaned into. But I do feel a little bit like I'm grappling and I do feel a little bit like it seems like everybody else has a really good system in place. And I'm I'm constantly just kind of going like, what is my thing? I love to watch my shows. Um and yes. I think that's the. Oh my what are you God, watching right now? Trash. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is un- trash. I watch Ninety Day Fiance like it is. My oh job. my God! I just recorded the series because they're bringing back like Bachelor season. So. <laughs> You sound exactly like my best friend, Diane. She is like trash TV. Well, you queen. know, and it's like, and, and that's one of the things about self-care is like, you know, here's the thing. I probably do have my system of self-care, which has been a lot of bad TV, mm-hmm. lots of social media, which, you know, could be argued whether that's self-care or not. To some degree it is. And to some degree it's not. And so I just, I'm judgy about my self-care because it doesn't mm-hmm. look. Because it's exactly. not the picture it look perfect, like a magazine bubble bath self um, article, right. and also I do know that there's a little bit more I could do on the spiritual healing level, and that's really what it is. Because I'm traumatized, mm-hmm. and I'm acting right. out of trauma to some degree. If you're gonna judge it, it's almost like I'm a little bit behaving badly. Like you know what I mean? Like I don't really <laughs> need to be up till one a.m. watching Ninety Day Fiance reruns. You know. That's probably not what I need to do. Nobody right. needs to. So that I'm to. tired in the morning and you know what I mean? But um, right. starting to turn the corner into, you know, because I'm very connected right now, like universally, the healing that is needed for our Black community and that is lacking on a comprehensive level, but even individually and really starting to go, oh, I'm acting out of trauma right now. How can mm-hmm. I begin to heal this? You know, and so I even was thinking about like, yeah. I did a little bit of tapping yesterday. I laid on my back. Yeah, I, I laid tapping. on my back. I was doing tapping and I'm like, okay, Tanya, this is a direction you need to go because mm-hmm. because one begets the other. If I'm self-soothing in ways that don't also contribute to my healing, then I am ultimately yeah. doing a little bit more damage in the long run. So that's kind right. of where I've yeah. been with it. Have you heard of the Sedona method? No. So I'm working with a coach right now who, and he was on the first episode of the podcast, who uses the Sedona Mm. method. And I actually just bought the workbook to like go through it with myself. I highly recommend it because I, I have been someone in the past who has like done the like skip over the going through it part and been like, I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm happy. I'm, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I went through something at the end of last year where I had to, like, I really had to talk Mm. to somebody and I really had to go through Mm. it. And he really helped me with that and used the Sedona method. And he's like, I've had so much training and all sorts of like coaching techniques. And this is the one thing, like the best thing that I have found that really helps people from all walks of life. So what's like the bullet points? What is it? So the bullet points is... If you're feeling an emotion like anger or sadness, something like that, you then look at the underlying lack beneath it. So is it is it the lack of approval? Is it the lack of security? Or is it the lack of control? Mm-hmm. 
lack of approval, lack of oh. security, lack of control. Deeper than that is the lack of connection or disconnection, but you start with those first three. And then you go through of like, can I accept right now in this moment that I feel this lack of control or security or approval? And you go through the process of like accepting that. And then you go through the process of like sometimes where it came from, Mm -hmm. whose is it, right? Then you go through the process of letting it go. And you just keep repeating that process until you are no longer emotionally charged by that. Hmm. It's it, it's interesting that you said something about how it's working for, how did you put it, just like all different sort of walks of life? Or what did you say? Do you remember? I, I don't remember. But I mean, you can use it for like eat stuff in your business to trauma in your childhood right, right. to grief. Yeah, I think you that... Know, um, you had said something along the lines of how it applies for people of different demographics or something, or that's how I heard it. Sure. And the reason I, that struck me is because so often, um, a lot, and not that I'm not putting this one in the category of self-help because I don't know it, but, you know, so often a lot of these sort of leading self-help folks within that industry, for instance, say like a Brene Brown, I remember mm-hmm. about a year ago, there was something of hers that was going around and being shared a lot. And I finally just posed the question on Facebook, like, is Brene Brown intersectional at all? Like, does she have any mm. understanding? That's like why, like a book like Eat, Pray, Love makes me want to kill myself because it's just like <laughs> so, so white. <laughs> and so I'm always interested in anything that is approached with that understanding of intersectionality. Cause like, yeah. I don't have a therapist right now. I desperately need one, but yeah. I need a black therapist, right? Yeah. Because they can address and, uh, or I should, yeah, a blacker person of color, quite honestly, but they can integrate the trauma of being a black person in this mm-hmm. country, which is not separate from the fact that there's also joy. I mean, I don't, but um, there's a very real trauma. And so that's so important to me and sort of the type of work that I would do. And I'm always sort of curious about that. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I would, it's something to, to question for yeah, sure. Yeah. And it's sort of like, and I, I think it's illuminating only because I think it's something people might not think about. And whether that's in a school district or a community or, you know, things that are put forth, like, here's what we're going to do. It's like, have you thought at all whether this is intersectional? Have you thought yeah. at all whether this is inclusive and how actually damaging it can be if you haven't, you know? Mm. But what you're talking about sounds like something that has sort of a universal application that. Um, Maybe. Yeah. And and I also just keep thinking like, but if the trauma keeps happening, how do you, how do you heal and how do you forgive when it just keeps happening? Well, that's such a great point because I think like so much of the work is about like arriving, right? Like, okay, took care of that, not took care of that trauma because any trauma is going to like have, you have to kind of continue to do the work to put it at bay or, you know, Mm -hmm. to keep it at bay. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Like if you cannot pull out of the situation that continues to re-traumatize you, you know, and it's interesting because like there's like trauma from my past that I have dealt with in various ways through therapy. Right. But like, you know, there's that thing about the way elephants would travel, like with their trunks connected and the idea that like when 
somebody is triggered, it isn't just triggering the elephant at the front. It mm-hmm. triggers the entire line. You know what I mean? And I so, haven't like, heard that. Yeah. So that like, yeah. I mean, and I'm, it, it's not as eloquently as I've you know, read it <laughs> in other way, in other capacities, but it's just the idea that like, even if you've dealt with traumas, it's still always going to be connected. And you have a trauma that is 400 years old. That is correct. <laughs> <laughs> and I do not. <laughs> oh my god but you know i also think it's interesting like some of the rethinking of this is actually white people have been traumatized too and what mm-hmm. i mean by that is it is a great failure of white parents of white communities of white churches of white schools that they have taught and passed on racism to their white children Mm-hmm. And they have embedded in them this privilege and entitlement as their birthright. And there is a degree of destruction there that is traumatic, too. So, so often when I hear people as empathetic as they can be, also sort of want to still say, I can't imagine how you feel. I'm like, what do you mean you can't imagine how I feel? We all, I mean, I didn't watch the video as self-preservation, but like everybody knows what was in that video. Yeah. It's right there. And it most certainly, if you watched it, you can imagine it because it was right. Like it's happening to all of us. Right. And white people it is traumatic. are damaged as well. Right. Yeah. You are. And, and it is a sickness in the mind that white people had since they were young, right? Mm -hmm. And so there is a level of work there that if people recognize it and sort of that damage that they don't recognize as damage. Right. But when you start to open your eyes to it, you're like, holy shit. You know, in my experience this weekend or this week talking to my neighbors who are police officers or cops or live with police officers, like they don't watch, they, they don't learn the names. They don't, um, they defend, they deflect. And it's like so frustrating because like, if you would watch that video and like learn the story behind these people who are being killed, like how could you still defend that? Well, and even worse, it isn't just about watching it. They know. If they are in the police system, they know they've seen, they cannot pretend like, even if they are not participants, they are complicit. It was, it's frustrating to have a conversation with people who just keep defending and saying, well, they say things, but they've, I've never seen them do anything. And it's like, okay, the, the saying of things means their, their belief is there. That sickness is there. It's utter, that's utter denial. And, you know, I think that, this whole conversation anymore about there's good cops and bad cops. It's just like, screw that. It doesn't matter. That is a granular debate about something that is so much bigger Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter. It is, that is a very childish argument. You know, if you're worrying about the good cops, you know, that is not the point your That's, individualized experience right I'm like, I doesn't don't reflect give it. A crap and and there's this argument i've been dealing you know so i watched lance armstrong documentary do you know about it is it the new 30 for 31 yes i haven't watched it but i, oh I know God. about it so we watched this and i don't know a lot about lance armstrong but i created some narrative you know that mm-hmm. after all this he 
owns what he did and has regret and has tried to make amends, whatever. So within the first two minutes of this documentary, you realize, can I swear on this podcast? Oh, fuck yeah. Okay. <laughs> you, um, you realize, and I'm not kidding you, it is the opening shot. He's telling a story. And within the first two minutes, you go, oh my God, this guy's an asshole. Mm. And then the rest of the documentary just shows in a myriad of ways how he is an asshole. He has no regrets. He is not sorry. He thinks he was screwed. Like, it's astonishing, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the reporters interviewed for the documentary makes this point that has just stuck with me and resonated with me, which is basically this question. You know, there comes a point because, you know, there's always the argument, but then he had the foundation. At least there was that. You know what I mean? (laughs) So this idea of it comes down to a point where you have to ask yourself, you know, you have to delineate between a good person who does bad things and a bad person who does good things. Mm. And so a lot of that resonates with me in relation to this idea of there's good cops, there's bad cops, whatever. But if you decide to join an organization that you know is corrupt, despite the fact that you feel like you're going to somehow be able to work around it, and then you try to work around it and you find out that you can't, like at what point do you have to ask yourself, are you complicit? Is it right. time to move aside? And like, I don't want to go like too far down that path because again, my agenda isn't to trash the police. That's, it's not my agenda, but right. I just think it's an important question for really everybody to ask. Like, and, and it translates to the idea of, are you racist or anti-racist? You know, mm-hmm. are you a good person who is willing to see bad things happen around you and say nothing? And if you aren't willing to say anything, when do you cross over to just being a bad person? Yeah. And I don't care if you have family and friends that you love, but why is this okay? You know, Jane Elliott, the famous white woman who did all of these workshops over the years, getting white people to confront their racism. And there's a classic video of her. She's so awesome. She looks like a school librarian. She looks so mean. (laughs) Oh, my God. She's amazing. And... Um, it's in front of this audience of people and she's, and it's all mostly white people. And she basically poses the question, like who here would want to endure what a black person endures in this country? Stand I, up. I've heard this. Yes. 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 Stand up. Nobody stands up. She asks again, who here is willing to, or would welcome enduring the things a black person in this country endures? Nobody stands up. And then she's like, well, then why are you okay with the fact that it's happening? Yeah. Then you are in denial. You are not in, you know, you know. You know. So stop it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, or you would have stood up because you think it would just be fine to be a black person because nothing happens and everything's fine. With that being said, can we transition into the industry that we're in? And (laughs) I mean, we're already 40 minutes into this podcast and we haven't even gotten into our industry. Oh my God. (laughs) So buckle in, everybody. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Inclusion, equity. Well, let's let's talk about when did you decide to become a teacher of this? Was it like something that you consciously did or was it something that organically happened? And was it through your work as an actor and a storyteller? Yeah. You know, it, it was organic. I have a Ph.D. in being black and 
I have the experience of being in this industry as a writer, an actress, a teacher, a director, an author, and it informs what I do. And Mm -hmm. I largely come from my personal experience and drive it from there. You Mm -hmm. also have to pair that with the fact that I grew up, we were the only black family in an all white area. Mm -hmm. So I grew up within a country, which is oppressive. And then literally a neighbor, a town that was oppressive, not because it was overt, but because it was all white and I never saw myself reflected. So number one, it enables me to bridge between my experience as a, as a black woman and then somehow translating it to an audience or to be able to reflect as a black woman for other black people, our experiences. And then it started to translate professionally, really through the podcasts. I had a podcast called Race Bait. Then I have Tanya's Take. And through those podcasts, the teaching component really started to emerge. I started to do live versions of the podcasts. I started to work with different companies who were asking for um, specialized keynote speeches or, uh, like I said, a, a live version of the podcast. And so, yeah, it's all been very organic. I've written a lot about race on my blog and I can't help it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't help but speak to it. And I am encouraged by the fact that um, the message seems to get delivered, which is what keeps me going. Uh, do you follow hashtag booked? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love them. They're awesome. They are. And I really appreciate them in that, like, Yes, I knew of inequities and I knew of racism in our industry, but I I didn't know the stories. And I think it's so important for people to come out and tell their stories because it's it said like facts tell, stories sell. Or, or, yeah. But like, <laughs> does, that, does that make sense in this ca- Wait, uh, say capacity? It again? Wait, facts? facts? Oh, facts sell. Right. Facts tell, stories sell. So like, if I hear facts about racism, I'm like, "Uh uh-huh, okay, yeah. Yeah. Definitely um, one in four black men go to jail, okay, yeah. And and I can can be like, holy shit, that's fucking crazy. But then if I hear a story about a black, uh, like Morocco, who we're going to play your one minute on racism with Morocco, to say like at nine years old, when I'm playing football with my friends, and a cop points a gun at me, mm-hmm. like, yeah. that is so much more powerful, even than the powerful statistic of, like, one in four black men in America go to jail. Yeah, it's the difference between intellectualizing information or having the emotional response to the information. And that was the sort of the whole basis of A Minute on Racism. And, you know, hashtag book is doing it through humor. Yes. Because uh, they're hilarious. And- they're so funny. But the message resonates, you know, I think it's so important to find those different ways because, you know, a minute on racism is somber. It is not Mm -hmm. a picnic, you know, and because it's a minute, people can stay with it. Right. Right. And then with something like hashtag booked where you're laughing, but you still don't get to leave without some truth. Right. Which is the magic of storytelling in all its ways. Yeah. You know. And then, and we get to see, as white people, we get to see how we have hurt people unconsciously or consciously and yeah. and be aware of it and then change our behavior. That's the hope, you know? Yeah. Um, well, yeah. 
especially on a personal level, once you wake up to it, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I didn't know anybody. And even though it's through a video, now I do. So like, Mm -hmm. try to blink away that image of Morocco. And Morocco's, by the way, freaking so many of them, they all slay me. Morocco's end, the end of Morocco's slays me. Mm-hmm. When I ask him, I think the question is, what do you do? What do you do? Yeah. And so try to like forget that. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that's like an image that pops into your mind when you're like folding your laundry. Like it's, right. it lives with you, I hope. He, sa- he said, I'm a man, right? Yes. And that's, I mean, you see in 13th with Ava DuVernay, you see the black men protesting, yep. wearing signs saying, I am a man. Yes. And, you know, that wasn't planned. Right. Let's listen to Morocco's One Minute on Racism right now. When I was a kid, I was throwing a football with my best friend in front of the apartment building. Police officer jumps the curb, gets out, pulls out his gun and says, freeze. I was nine. At 11, I was riding my dad's bike through Cicero, Illinois. These late teens, early 20s, chased me in their car, tried to run me off the road. I flipped the bike in between two parked cars. I was 11. At 16, I was standing on Rush Street with my two friends, and the police rolled up in a, a horse, arrested us, and led us through the streets for about two blocks and put us in a paddy wagon. Um, when I was in boot camp in the Marine Corps, um, one of the other recruits said, I didn't know black people could tan. When I came home from Desert Storm, I was pulled over by the cops and put on a car uh, for making a three-point turn when I was picking up my aunt. Um, I applied for a position at a hotel, at this boutique hotel. After the third interview, it was for a security position. They offered me the doorman position. I was 21. Um... What is your name? Morocco Omari. What do you do? I'm a man. And he was one of the first ones I did after I did, when I, after I released mine and I started producing others. Oh, I haven't seen yours. I have to oh, go yeah, look for yeah. yours. It's, uh, if you go to the Minute on Racism Facebook page, it's, it's now sort of in the forefront because I just like, it's not considered one of the minutes to sort of represent George Floyd, but I just sort of was like, this is the original one and just okay. kind of reposted it. But no, yeah, um, that wasn't planned. And so for me, it was just always so powerful to capture them right after they had been stopped mid-thought, mid-sentence, you know, mid-word, just in that vulnerable, raw place to pose a question. And just some of the most gorgeous responses, simple, poetic, symbolic mm. came out and they would just slay me, you know? It was yeah. really powerful filming those, really powerful. Um, well, it's really powerful watching them as well. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. And I love, I think you talked about it with Allie on her podcast, Acting Up with Allie Goodman. Allie, uh, we love Allie. I love Allie. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that you love Allie too. Oh my gosh, she's the best. You talk about how in the past, and I, I felt the same way too, is like, you're conflicted because so many people say, well, you have to do one thing and do it well. And, you know, if like if if you can't, if you're if you can do anything besides acting, just do it. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, like for me being a coach and an actor um, and a podcast host and like all these things that I love, there's a through line with that in that it's like lifting people up. It's making people laugh. It's bringing people joy. 
it is changing people's minds through my acting, through my coaching, through my friendship, through whatever. Right, right. And what I, I loved about what you said was like that your through line is just being a storyteller. And whether yes. you do that through podcast or through teaching about racism or through acting, like you are a, a storyteller. Yeah. For me, what that does is it lets, lets me off the hook. Right. Because then I don't feel that pressure of like, I'm not doing enough acting. Right. I'm not doing enough this. It's like, oh, I'm because I'm doing this right now. It just always keeps the art in the front, not the commerce, not the end product, but mm. the art. And um, that's what I love to do. And I don't even know if I would have like, I mean, starting in my career, I would never have thought of myself as a storyteller. I thought of myself as an actor. Right. And then I started to just put on more hats and try them on and would suffer the guilt of feeling like, what do I, you know, nothing against folks who have ADHD, but I was like, (laughs) what do I have? ADHD? Why, you know, why do I now want to move on to this when I didn't like win the Tony as a director? (laughs) Because that's the mark of success. You have to win a Tony. And then when you like give yourself a freaking break and realize it's a marathon, right? And it's like mm-hmm. within that, you're going to do all sorts of different things and you get to decide. Nobody else gets to decide. It's right. like, oh, acting jobs are drying up or hello, we're in a pandemic right. and acting doesn't exist. Nobody's acting. Oh my God. <laughs> then... How will I get to continue to do what I love, which is this art and this storytelling yeah. without the possibility of a pandemic, just taking it all away? Right. You know? Right. Absolutely. And I just really appreciate that, that you've like fully embraced that yes. and understand that and like tell people that. It absolutely made me sane. It absolutely gave me back the reins of my career and recognized that it was bigger than booking a commercial and it was mm. bigger than whatever next play I hoped to be cast at, which as a black woman cast mm. in because I'm discerning and because I am fortunate. I I have, a, you know, a, my husband is not in the industry. We have insurance. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like those are some real things. But I have the luxury as an actor to say no to things that I especially think reinforce stereotypes don't Absolutely. say anything new, right? Yeah. And so because of that, I'll say no, which means even when there's opportunities, there are times where I won't then be working, right? As right. An actor. Right. Um, so again, that's... It gave you have me- some sort of control of the narrative that yes. you... You know, I think back to as a kid, I went to an all white school where one, <laughs> one black girl, yeah, right. It's a little different for you than for me. Yeah. You know, I had one black friend and yeah. Yeah, that was me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> On top of that, she was Jehovah's Witness. Oh, and, bless her heart. Oh I my know. God. Bless her heart. Oh my God. <laughs> like how hard was, was that oh, been? Shoot. <sighs> but you know, my only experience of people of color were Rachel. <laughs> And were the things I saw on TV, whether it was the news or TV shows or, and my God, like, if that's the only experience we have of black people, um, so it's so important that we have uh, representation on TV and the, and the correct representation. Which largely can only come when black people, people of color are at the reins 
are building the table themselves, are in charge of those narratives. Otherwise, it can be a hot, 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 hot mess. Because even if you're well-meaning, you still don't know. No. You don't know, and you will fail at one point or another in terms of the authenticity. I don't care if you're still a hit. Like You might still be a hit with no like writer's room that looks like the people that are supposedly in your show, but there won't be authenticity, and there won't be the opportunity for it to resonate with, you know, just you need to decide, who's this for? Is this for a white audience, or Mm -hmm. is this for a diverse audience, right? And so when you're casting when you're writing if you are including black people and people of color you have to check yourself and say who is my audience who am i intending this to land with because you get away with a hell of a lot more including being really inauthentic when your only goal is to please the white audience Mm -hmm. right and that's Mm -hmm. not inclusion if you have representation in front of the camera but none behind that's diversity without inclusion and there's a basic there's a saying that i love which is diversity without inclusion is violence wow. so you're putting people in a situation where they can't advocate for themselves because the way. actors don't have the power exactly in this situation no and people want to keep jobs and so right. they're in this situation where they're kind of like locked in to this oppressive environment where if they feel if they were to speak out they might get penalized. And often when they do speak out, they don't get heard. Is this the the five W's you were talking about in one of your podcast episodes? The who, what, when, where, why? Oh my gosh, please remind me. You know, Allie, speaking of Allie, the other day she asked me if she could use a poem that I had written on my blog, if she could have it read at this Zoom thing that um, somebody was requesting content for. And Mm. I was like, are you thinking, thinking of me? Did I write that? Like, I just completely <laughs> forgot that I had written it. So um, you, were, you were talking about your, your, in your children's school, they had Black Lives Matter Week. Yes. And how traumatic it was for your daughter, right? Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And like who was teaching, right? Yep. And, yep. and who made the curriculum? Yep. What are you teaching? Yep. Is it age appropriate? Yep. When are you teaching it? Where are you teaching it? Why are you teaching it? Are yes. you and you know what I what I thought was fascinating was when you were like, it's because it's like just this week and people think it's this extra thing instead of decolonizing the syllabus exactly. as a whole. Exactly, and um, that's the thing. Like, yeah. and and as you said, who is teaching it? Because mm-hmm. it's like a white teacher leading Black Lives Matter Week in the classroom showing a video of a black man being beaten by police is Mm. not a good look. No. (laughs) And it's traumatic. My daughter was traumatized. She was like, and she couldn't, she just would come home and like report fragments of what were happening. And I I did. I started pulling her out of the hour of class that it was happening because it was done irresponsibly with good intention. Mm -hmm. And it was district dictated. Um, Her principle is wonderful, but it was dictated by the district who was not technically giving parents an opt-out option. Mm -hmm. So that's why she couldn't like go to the library and read and just step out of the classroom. I literally had to pull her out of the school for an hour. Yeah. So that was district mandated and it just can't happen that way. You can't put black children in the line of fire of your good intentions. Mm -mm. Yeah. And the decolonizing the syllabus, like in eighth grade, was it eighth grade or was it? Maybe it was freshman year of high school. I can't remember. But I had a history teacher who 
we had this huge textbook in front of us. And he goes, I want you to take that textbook and I want you to throw it on the ground. (laughs) And we all threw it on the ground. And then he gave us handouts of lies my teacher told me. Amazing. Um, It was it was amazing. And it was the first time that I ever had this experience of, holy shit, I've been lied to my whole life. Entire life. Entire life. Was he white? Yeah, he was a white man. Awesome. And that's what it takes. Right. And the sad thing is, he might have been, I don't know, he might have been considered a rebel. He might have gotten confronted by other parents who were like, what are you teaching them? He might have been told by district heads, you can't do this. You have to teach. You know what I mean? Yeah. So how brave that was and and how exciting that he was able to do that, because that's what it takes. I mean, history really does. Because otherwise I would have just believed everything my teacher, like, my teachers know the history and yeah. it's like, yeah. So it just, it's, there's so much work to be done. It's yeah. so much work to be done. So much. And it can't stop just after this week because it's not popular anymore. That's right. And that's what we'll see. And that's what, well, I will, I'll speak for myself. That's what I'm weary of. Yeah. So my heart is emboldened by what I'm seeing and it is, I still have to protect it because Mm -hmm. my heart has been broken before. (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, we had the whole civil rights movement. Well, there was that. (laughs) (laughs) And then what came from that, like more mass incarceration. So, Oh, my God. Yeah, I hope, I really do hope this is different. Me too. I think it is. There are clear signs that it is. And the quickness in which some things are happening because of this awakening, whether it be arresting the police officers when right. they wouldn't have. Right. You know, arresting yeah. those men who killed Ahmad Arbery when they wouldn't have. Has Breonna Taylor's murder been? Not per- yet. And that's partly for anybody who's confused. That's partly why stuff is continuing. Right. Like we cannot rest. Breonna Taylor's, those officers are still working for the department. That's insane. We can't rest, you know. Yeah. Minneapolis did defund or the the board decided right. to defund the police department. That's a whole huge argument. It is. And it's a it's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow, but there's such validity and value in it and there's a lot of stuff going around that kind of puts it into sort of succinct description so people could start to wrap their brain around it right. because when you first hear it it's like, "What? That can't be No. It's like this is the police have we, protected me my whole life. Exactly. And this is where we need to be in terms of rethinking everything, which right. back to our industry is the same thing. Right. We need to start over in so many ways, which means toppling so many things that have been in place for far too long. And that's scary, but it's a reckoning and it, it has to happen unless we just slide back to the way it was. And the truth is black artists to so many aren't willing to Mm-mm. go back in. Something that I think I ask every single coaching client that I've ever worked with is, are you willing to see that differently? Mm. And I think that because immediately when I heard defund the police, I immediately thought like, that's crazy. What? And then I was like, are you willing to see that differently? Yeah. <laughs> really, yeah. It's like radical thinking. It's radical change. It is an upending of everything you know. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I was having a conversation with someone who basically was like, Well, what's going on? The pandemic and now everybody's out in the streets and 
nobody's safe again and having a problem with the fact that like, oh, someone can't have a funeral, but mm. there can be thousands of people in the street and whatever. And I was like, yeah, none of it makes sense. It's all upended. It's confusing. It seems unfair. It seems mm-hmm. like there's double speak and double standards. Welcome to how it is to be a black person every day in this country. Absolutely. Stop trying to make sense of any of this. There is no sense right now. And that's the start. If you can sit with that discomfort and that confusion and that feeling of, well, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't add up. Welcome to my world. If you're sick of hearing about racism this week, welcome to the world of a black person who their whole life revolves around it. Yeah. And even more than hearing about it, it's being injured by it. Mm. Oh, of course. All we're, you know, all anybody's asking is for you to like open your eyes to it, witness it, recognize it. It's never going to happen to you. Yeah. But recognize it's happening to us every single day. My friend was texting with me and said that her 16 year old just got his license and they were walking and he asked, I'm scared to drive now. What do I do if the police stops me? Like, mm-hmm. that is nothing that me or my sibling ever had to consider when we were 16. I am concerned every time I walk out of the house that mm-hmm. I am going to be confronted with some white nonsense. And I'm not even kidding. No. And whatever my reaction may or may not be could end me up in jail or dead. Like, that is something I, and when I'm with my daughters, what that means. Yeah. I am full on afraid of getting pulled over by a police officer, knowing that the minute it happens, I could be dead. Mm-hmm. And that's not, it's not theoretical. No, nope. it's not maybe because it doesn't matter how I behave. It doesn't matter what I do. And I'm just like, just trying to live my life and know the sort of code I'm supposed to keep and would probably do my best. But if something suddenly felt like I need to fight for it, mm-hmm. I, I have to be so aware every moment how something is landing. That must be exhausting. It's exhausting, but it's my, it's survival. It's a, right. it's an embedded survival technique that you either learn as, you know, you don't get, you don't start it, but at some point you have to learn it. When was the first time your parents sat you down and talked about race? Never. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Which is part of this sort of difficulty of my experience growing up. My parents um, were Haitian immigrants. Mm. My mother was a very light-skinned black woman. My father was a dark-skinned black man, and he did encounter racism, but they also were doctors. Mm. So there was this mix of, like, you know, they were quote-unquote respectable. But my father, anytime he did try to bring up issues of, like, when he got pulled over because he was driving his Mercedes and he got pulled over in our neighborhood by an officer asking him um, whose car that was. Whenever he would try to kind of talk about that in our house, my mom would kind of be like, oh, no, 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 no. Mm. So there was a lot of denial in our household. And as much as I love my parents, there was a great, great error in choosing to raise their children in an all-white area. And I had to grapple with that, you know, and I'm at peace with it now, but, you know, it took a while. So I had to find it on my own. And the truth is, is whether it's discussed or not, it will be found because right. it's everywhere, you know? And just like you said, you have a PhD in being a black woman in America. Yeah. Is there anything else you would like to touch on today? You know, it's really just about my hope is that people do their own work, mm-hmm. that they're making sure as much as they're externally spreading the word which is needed, Mm -hmm. that they are internally doing the work and that it stays present in their mind, that they don't let it go. And for my Black brothers and sisters, I am wishing you healing. And I am reflecting for you to remember that we are dealing with trauma and that we need to seek healing. 
within mm-hmm. the work that we're doing. 100%. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Tanya. Thank you. And your work is so important. And I also hope that you take care of yourself and find that joy and that healing. And if there's anything I can do, please let me know. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you. Thank you nice so much. Nice to talk to you too. I hope that we can see each other in I person know, soon. I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait. It'll be a beautiful thing. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye. Huge thank you to Tanya Richard for coming on to the show this week. And as always, I'd love to give a special shout out to Jamie and Eric at Blythe Martin Productions for my theme music, to Joe Mazza at Brave Lux for the photo in my logo, and to Mike Caputo at Pod Clubhouse for producing this podcast. The whole artist with Courtney Rue is produced under the SAG after a new media contract. Thanks, SAG after for your continued support. I hope you've been inspired. I hope you learned something. And I hope you feel better than you did before you were listening. And I hope you take some action, too. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you next week. The Whole Artist with Courtney Rue The Whole Artist with Courtney Rue is a Pod Clubhouse original production, produced, engineered, and edited at Pod Clubhouse Studios. Follow us online at podclubhouse.com.